This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. On May 8th, 1945, the Allied powers declared victory in Europe, putting an end to the Nazi regime. President Truman addressed the nation. General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. Much remains to be done. There was a lot to be done. Rebuilding Europe, setting up a provisional government, and getting Germany to be less, well, Nazi-ish. Our producer, Sam Greenspan, is just back from Deutschland. And to that end, there was one thing that the Americans and the British and the French and the Russians all wanted out of Germany. It was a book. Mein Kampf, or My Struggle, was Adolf Hitler's fictionalized autobiography. And in it, he outlines his political ideology and plans for Germany's future. It's a synthesis of his hatred for Jews and other groups. And it was everywhere. The whole number of sold copies of Mein Kampf, only in Germany, uh, at the end of uh, the World War II, uh, was 12.45 million. And uh, around 1 million copies in many, many different editions and translations in other languages. This is Sven Felix Kellerhoff, a journalist and author of a book about Mein Kampf. He says that according to one survey after the war, every fifth German, one of five, uh, have read uh, Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf was given out to people when they joined the Nazi party. And in some cities, the government would even give it as a wedding gift. Uh, give a copy to fresh married uh, couples. As World War II drew to a close, a lot of Germans threw away or burned their copies of Mein Kampf. No one wanted to look like a Nazi to the occupying armies. Still, the Allies felt the need to ban the book. The Allies, especially the American military government, made a law in fall of '45, which banned the Nazi party itself and, and also this law banned Mein Kampf. Now, Mein Kampf was only banned outright for a few years. After all, the Third Reich had been infamous for censorship and banning books. And the last thing the new German Republic wanted was to look like Nazis. Hitler's intellectual property, including Mein Kampf, was ultimately given to the government of Bavaria, the state in southern Germany where Hitler rose to power. And the Bavarian government decided that as the copyright owners, they would not publish any new German editions of Mein Kampf, and they would seek to limit and control who had access to the book. That way they could make sure it was used only for scholarship and not in an attempt to revive fascism. And it just so happened that Germany had the perfect tool for the job. <laughs> Something to help them deal with sensitive information that's neither censorship nor open access. The gift shrunk. So here it was, once upon a time. Here to, to there. Oh, this is, the, this is the room? Yes. So we're in, we are in the gift shrunk? Yes. Gift shrunk. Gift meaning poison, shrunk meaning case or cupboard or cabinet. A poison cabinet, or in this case, a room in the basement of the Bavarian State Library. The word Giftschrank can actually mean a few different things. In a pharmacy, it's a place for keeping controlled substances. But one of the oldest usages of this word, going back hundreds of years, is a Giftschrank of a library. A box or place to lock away materials deemed unfit for the public. These materials were set aside not so much to protect them from people, but to protect people from them. Little biohazard zones for information. 
Over the course of centuries, these poison cabinets in German libraries have emptied and filled up, emptied again and filled up again, their contents speaking volumes about what German society considers dangerous at any given moment. You can read the gift chunk as a cultural history of uh, morality of uh, behavior. That's Stefan Kellner, a staff historian at the Bavarian State Library and author of a book about its gift schrank. The name of my book is Der Giftschrank, Erotik, Sexualwissenschaft, Politik und Literatur, die weggesperrten Bücher der Bayerischen Staatsbibliothek. The Giftschrank, Erotics, Sexuality, Politics and Literature, Hidden Books of the Bavarian State Library. This story begins in this library at shortly after the foundation in 16th century. At this time, in the 1580s, Bavaria was a kingdom inside of the Holy Roman Empire, which didn't want the public reading works that they considered heretical. They put aside authors like Martin Luther and Galileo. Even some Catholic authors which were not uh, okay for the Catholic Church. But while these anti-clerical writings may have been prohibited, the powers that be didn't just round up all the copies they could find and burn them. They thought it would be good to hold on to them. You have better arguments if you know what the other side thinks. At the order of the Duke of Bavaria, the library took all the forbidden literature and put it in a locked box and called it Der Giftschrank, the poison cabinet. The box contained about 500 works opposed by the Catholic Church, which were kept around only as a means of reference for those working to oppose the people who opposed the church. And they may not be used without permission of the Duke of Bavaria. But over time, the Catholic Church's grip over Europe got weaker. By the 1800s, the gift shrunks of German libraries were less concerned with protecting us from the Protestant writings of Martin Luther and more concerned with protecting us from sex. And this came to the fore when the King of Bavaria acquired a private collection of books that had belonged to a guy named von Krenner. Franz von Krenner. And the king wanted the library to house Franz von Krenner's collection, which was an assortment of books for adults. Books concerning love in all perspectives. Marquis de Sade, of course, and something about uh, whipping and so on, which was... Uh, something about what? Whipping. Uh, people who like to be whipped and... Uh, okay. Unwilling to throw these controversial books out and unwilling to make them readily available, librarians found a home for von Krenner's erotica collection in the gift schrank. And they were very serious about keeping its contents secure. There were two keys, and only if they were together, they could open the, the gift schrank. It's like a, like a nuclear launch. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And some people believe that the books inside the gift schrank were so dangerous that they could literally make you sick. There was one librarian at that time who got crazy, Josef Scherer. And he got mentally ill. And after he was in the hospital, his friend went to his room, opened the cupboard, saw many of Krenner's books inside and said, I think that must have been the reason for his illness. Time passed. Germany fought and lost World War I. And from the rubble of that defeat grew a liberal counterculture. 
Dadaists proclaimed that art was dead. Expressionist films explored the darkness of the soul. Berliners passed late hours at cabarets. Nudists challenged traditional modesty. Berlin in the 1920s, it was center of all forms of different um, life experiments. Huh? And at the center of all this was a physician named Magnus Hirschfeld. And he founded an institute for all those people which had another sexual orientation than usual. Hirschfeld also promoted acceptance of transgenderism, STD prevention, contraception, and women's emancipation. He wrote that, The woman who needs to be liberated most is the woman in every man, and the man who needs to be liberated most is the man in every woman. But this liberal renaissance in Berlin would not last for long. As the Nazi party rose to power, Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Sciences had become a target. Magnus Hirschfeld was very famous at that time. He was gay, he was a Jew, and he was leftist. In May of 1933, the German Student Union, a group affiliated with the Nazis, raided Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute. They threw many of his books onto the street and burned them. This was four days before Nazis all across Germany started burning books by Jewish authors in public rallies. But even so, the new regime didn't get rid of everything. Bavarian State Library, they said, we have to keep them because we have to know what the enemy writes and to uh, fight with him. So, of course, Magnus Hirschfeld's books went into the gift shrunk. Twelve years later, in 1945, the Nazis had lost the war. And now their own literature, including, of course, Mein Kampf, was thrown into the gift shrunk. The hope was to denazify Germany and build a new society. But Germany did not become a new society. It became two new societies. As the communist barrier between East and West Berlin grows higher and stronger, the more determined grows the will of those in the East to escape. Along the border, East Berliners are forced to evacuate their homes as the communist police move to prevent their escape. The two Germanys would eventually each have their own government, their own culture, and of course, their own libraries. And the contents of each side's Giftschrank became a mirror for what was deemed dangerous in East and West. So the Nazi stuff, Mein Kampf and the writings of Joseph Goebbels and Alfred Rosenberg, this could be found in Giftschranks in both West and East Germany. But while West Germany actually thinned out their Giftschrank over time, allowing more access to so-called pernicious information. In East Germany, it was the opposite. East Germany was a dictatorship, so there was like a very obvious and strict censorship. Western print material wasn't normally accessible. This is Elena Demka. While she was a student at university, she was looking to read some banned Czech poetry. And with the help of an idealistic professor, she was able to get access to the room where the university library kept its banned material. Well, the nickname was Giftraum, Poison Room. Well, I remember being really nervous and excited when I went there. It's a very big, representative 19th century building. So you have to go to the major staircase and you go up major staircase. And keep going up. And then there's smaller staircase, you go up a smaller staircase. Until you reached a spiral staircase. You had to climb up a spiral staircase and, and, and all of a sudden you're standing in front of a bunker door. It was made of iron and had a big circular glass window made of very thick glass. 
and it had two huge bars which you had to push down at the same time in order to open the door. Past the bunker door was a dark room. A stern-looking lady checked to see if your name was on a list. Then she got your book and let you go through another door. And then you went into the like small reading room, which was, in, um, strange enough, in a little glass dome. So it was a very light, a very, very pleasant, sunny place. In East Germany, the Giftschrank had become a place you could visit. And in this library at the University of Leipzig, the Giftschrank was actually a pretty lovely place to be. Um, was the best reading room in the house, actually. You trying to see what people were reading? Of course I was. Elena had been hoping to meet other counterculture types who were also there to read politically conscious literature. I was disappointed, realizing that the other people were not reading politically relevant literature. And when I saw, you know, pretty students reading fashion literature, I thought, okay, she chatted up her professor to get access to the poison room to read fashion magazines from the West. Within about a year of Elena visiting the poison room, the East German government had collapsed, the border was opened, and Germany was reunified. All across the former East, Giftschranks shrank. Literature critical of the East German government, magazines that showed life in a capitalist society, they were taken out from behind iron bunker doors and returned to normal circulation. Today, the physical rooms and cabinets that once served as gift shrunks all across Germany are mostly empty. Their contents return to the regular stacks, but not everything. Today, Mein Kampf is kept in what Stefan Kellner calls a sort of virtual gift shrink. A virtual gift shrink. Meaning there's no physical box or even a particular room cordoning off the books from the user. Rather, the library relies on the infrastructure of their catalog and checkout system to create a series of checkpoints between the user and books that the library wants to keep an eye on. When you search for Mein Kampf in the database, you can't just order it. You have to go see Susie. Susie Kuhlbeck was the librarian on the desk that day. And she said the first thing to do... First, I, I want you to go to our chief to have the permission to lend it. And as long as you don't seem like a Nazi, you can get a copy of Mein Kampf, no problem. The process of accessing Mein Kampf from the Bavarian State Library should feel pretty familiar to anyone who's ever gotten material from an academic library. But if you're underage... Under 18, they need the signature from the parents. Or you dress like a goth. If he has a uh, gothic costume, you know. Well, good luck getting through Susie. Yeah. If someone says, I want to get this book because I want to learn how to be a Nazi. Nah, no, no. Then comes a no. <laughs> Though, if you do go through the trouble of checking out Mein Kampf, just don't go in expecting too much. I read it. It's boring. <laughs> it's really boring. It's, it's really... These days, of course, you don't need a library to read Mein Kampf in Germany. It's not hard to find a copy at an antiquarian bookstore, and the text has been on the internet for at least a decade. Of course you can get Nazi literature in the internet and so on. But even if the book is readily available on the internet, Stefan Kellner says the library still has a responsibility to try to control who reads their copies, and for what purpose? Even if it's a bit anachronistic, we have to be a little careful. Not a little, we have to be careful with this part of our library. And now, for the first time since Hitler was in power, new copies of Mein Kampf are on sale in Germany. 
On January 1st, 2016, the copyright of Mein Kampf expired, which means this book is now in the public domain. The Institute for Contemporary History in Munich has just published a new critical edition of Mein Kampf. This edition is big, it's heavy, it's expensive, it's two volumes with 1,500 pages of footnotes and commentary meant to disprove and contextualize all of Hitler's claims. There's no way you could mistake it as anything other than serious scholarship. It makes you work through layers and layers of critique in order to get to Hitler's writing. It's almost as if the publishers wrapped a gift schrank around the new edition of Mein Kampf so that the world would be inoculated from its poison. Invisible was produced this week by Sam Greenspan with Katie Mingle, Avery Truffleman, Delaney Hall, Kurt Kolstad, Sharif Youssef, and me, Roman Mars. We have so many people to thank this week, many of whom have names I cannot pronounce, so I asked Sam to do it. Thank you to Tobias Kolp, Wilhelm Hilpert, and Peter Schnitzlein at the Bavarian State Library, Magnus Breshtkin and Simone Palmikel at the Center for Contemporary History in Munich, Sarah Bori, Andre Kraber, Romy Kunert, Louisa Beck, Pat Masidi Miller, Ulf Schwekendiek, Daniel Wetzel, Siegfried Lokatis, Bernd Florat, Dagmar Huvestedt, Michelle Krasowski, and Jeremy Ott. Thank you, one and all. Thanks also to OK Akumi and Melodium for providing some of the music this week. We'll have a full list on the website. We are a production of 99% Invisible Inc., a project of KALW 91.7 in San Francisco, and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. 99% Invisible is supported by Slack, the best messaging app for teams. Slack brings all of your communication at work into one place, integrating with the tools and services that you use every day. Their mission is to make people's working life simpler, more pleasant, and more productive. Instead of a hodgepodge of email, texts, and IMs, Slack brings all of your communication into specific channels that make sense and are easily searchable. 99PI just couldn't run without Slack at this point. We love it. Slack is free to use for as long as you want, but they do have paid plans with additional features and more powerful functionality. Anyone who visits slack.com slash will get $100 in credits they can use whenever they decide to upgrade to any paid plan. Seriously, it makes work better, it makes your life better and more fun. Go to slack.com slash 99. Support also comes from the Ace Hotel, a friendly place, continually new, with locations in all the great places not called Bay Area. That's New York, LA, Portland, Seattle, Palm Springs, and London, and now open in Pittsburgh in the heart of East Liberty. Just as a side note, if you don't know Pittsburgh, you should get to know Pittsburgh. They have funiculars, they have awesome bridges. When we get priced out of the East Bay, we're going to Pittsburgh. I'm going to live in the penthouse of the Ace Hotel. I don't actually know if they have a penthouse. The Ace Hotel in New Orleans is opening up this month and now accepting reservations. Each Ace is different, but each offers inspired design, in-room turntables, really good coffee, and the most comfortable beds in the cosmos. Plus, 99PI listeners can book a room with a secret special rate code, 99PI. Learn more at acehotel.com slash 99PI. And finally, this enterprise and Radiotopia have the great good fortune of being supported by MailChimp. This week on the 99PI MailChimp newsletter, Kurt decodes the distinctive yellow arrow signs that cover LA, pointing out film locations only to people in the know. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you need to subscribe to the newsletter. You can do that at 99pi.org, but if you want to send better email of your own, go to MailChimp.com. 
If you learned about the lifestyle experimentation of the Weimar Republic and thought, well that sounds pretty good to me, I bet you'd like Radiotopia's The Heart. It's really beautifully crafted show about love and intimacy and human bodies. Their current mini-season is called Ghost. It's about what love leaves behind. When love dies, something is always left behind. A constant reminder of what came before. How do we force ourselves to forget? How do we face what it feels like to be forgotten? This is Ghost, a mini-season by The Heart. Subscribe to The Heart at theheartradio.org. You can find this show and join the fine community of people who like this show on Facebook. I love seeing all the 99PI coins showing up on Twitter and Instagram. But if you want to explore the 99% invisible activity that shapes the design of our world, I recommend you spend some time with 99pi.org. Radiotopia from P.